So the theme of this is my father's world is everywhere you look, it's God's. And every blessing that you find everywhere you look is from God. It's really simple theology. He shines in all that's fair. Let's parse that out real quick. In every, what, is it, what does this word fair mean, the way that they're using it in that, in that hymn? No, that's the way we would use the word. Well, we would use fair weather to mean good weather, right? So in all that's fair, what they mean is in everything good and beautiful, God is shining. Wherever you find goodness, beauty, and truth, wherever you find goodness, beauty, and truth, it's God's gift. It's God's goodness, beauty, and truth, wherever you find it. There is a common attack on faith. How can the kind of suffering that we have in our world, meaningless suffering, not just suffering, but how can there be so much meaningless suffering if the God that this universe has is genuinely completely good and all-powerful? Either God is not all-powerful, which makes sense then of why there's the kind of suffering we have, or he's not all good. It's a common objection to Christian faith. I think we have really, really good answers to it, but that's not the topic of tonight. The topic of tonight is sort of the opposite problem. What about the problem of good? And you go, well, how could good be a problem? Well, doesn't the gospel say that without Jesus, we're, we're selfish? Then how do I find that a lot of people who don't even know Jesus are less selfish than some of the people that I know who at least claim to know Jesus. That's a problem. Or what do you do with beauty? Christian music, Christian art. When you use the word Christian as like an ad adjective, right? A descriptor, Christian music. You could just replace that with less, less quality music. Christian movies, less quality movies. I'm being sort of a jerk as I say that, but that's also kind of a little bit what I think. If it was really that good, you wouldn't need the word Christian on it to make people have to listen to it. If it's good music, people are going to want to listen to it. And what does that mean then when the best art isn't the Christian art or the best books aren't the Christian books or the best music isn't, aren't the Christian books? Wouldn't you think that the, the Holy Spirit, who is the source of all creativity, if you have him living in you, wouldn't that make you a better artist? What's up with that? What about uh, truth in uh, other religions? Moral truth in other religions? Because there's a lot of uh, stuff in the Buddhist ideas that very, sounds very much like Jesus. There's a lot within the, the Quran that many of us Christians would say, well, actually, we believe that too. But not just in the books. What do you do with the devotees of those faiths having virtues in, it, in them they're not all bad, in other words. And sometimes, in some respects, they might be better than us. Does that not cause you any sort of scandal or doubt? Sometimes the problem not of evil, but the problem of good in the world has been a challenge for many of us Christians in how do we reconcile that with our core convictions of faith? Now, if you haven't struggled with that, awesome. Good job. <laughs> Praise God for you. James puts it this way. Every good and perfect gift 
is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift. Yeah, but is that just for Christians? And is this only about Christian things? When you go, what counts as a Christian thing? There's this sacred, secular split that is very unbiblical, but it's very normal in Christian thinking. The Bible doesn't have any idea of the sacred-secular split. The Bible has the idea of the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then when you enter into this life in Christ, everything's spiritual. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You should be able to garden to the glory of God. Now, this sounds really weird. I'm not sure if I want to say it, but every, like Jesus invented sex. Yes. Right? So... Sorry, buddy. Didn't mean to say it in front of you. He said six. <laughs> yeah, six. That's what I mean. The number six, right after five. Like, there's nothing. There's, there's, the devil hasn't created anything. When I worked at the gas station, there was this lady, and she said, well, I just, you know, Adam and Eve, they were in the garden, and they were naked, and you know, they just had to eat that fruit, if you know what I'm saying. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, that fruit was sex. And I said, what are you, are you, no, it wasn't. It was literally the first command, be fruitful and multiply. She says, huh? I'm like, look in your Bible. But every good and perfect gift in the whole creation, in all of life, that every human on the planet, regardless of what they believe, regardless of whether they believe, whether they're a good person or a bad person, they got blessings in their life. Every single one of the blessings they have in their life comes down to them from, the, from my Father. From His fullness, it's John chapter 1, it's talking about Jesus. We have all received grace upon grace. And this little phrase in the Greek uh, is a military phrase. Wars used to be fought by generals who would lay up plans, like coaches lay up football, run, football plays. The generals were really the ones at, at, at war, and the soldiers were just like usable pieces being, <laughs> ah, it's terrible. But the, suppose, like the idea was the, the best general would win by outsmarting, by the way they organized their soldiers' strategy. strategy. And this is a strategy phrase. Grace upon grace is we've been flanked on both sides. We're surrounded. We're, we're pinned down. They, they got us in a sneak attack. And there's nothing we can do. And so from Jesus' fullness, we've been hemmed in. We've been, we've been, it's, it's, we can't escape the, the grace of Jesus. Now, who's the we, right? Who's John talking about? I, I think John's talking about humans. Not Christians. Humans. Every single human who has been made has been made through Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. And they are the recipient of so many graces of Jesus, they can't escape the graces of Jesus if they tried. If we tried, we can't. If they tried, they can't. I'm not trying to say they're all right, in right relationship with Jesus. That's a different thing. But whether you love him or not, you can't escape him. And you can't escape being a recipient of his grace whether you want, whether you want to or not. All truth is God's truth. All good and perfect gifts come from God. No matter who's receiving them, they all come from Him. Whether we're talking about humans or animals, the Father is the gracious provider of food and clothing for everyone on this planet. 
It's an interesting idea, isn't it? And he, he does it because he loves everyone. He loves the fish and the cattle. Remember the ending of Jonah? Jonah doesn't care about the Ninevites. Jonah, in fact, that's why Jonah's ticked. He's ticked because he knows God is merciful and loves, and loves people. God loves the people I hate even, which is really irritating. Jonah's more concerned about himself, and he's lost his little plant for shade, than he is about the Ninevites suffering the total consequences of sin. That's a, and Jonah has an interesting theology. When a city is sinful, you should run away from it. God has a different theology that says if a city is sinful, you ought to move toward it. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in their proper time. The eyes of all what? Godly people? No. Everybody, everywhere who's hungry receives whatever they receive because of the gracious provision of the Father. And not just humans, but Jonah doesn't care. But God says, Nineveh is full of this many people who don't even know their right from their left hand. And many cattle. I've always loved that line. And I'm like, God cares about the cows? Yeah, he does. There were theologians five, four or five hundred years ago trying to think about this stuff. And they're like, man, God is good to everyone, but not in the same way. I'm going to make these people so that I can send them to hell. But I'm going to make these people so that I can shower my grace on them. And when they see that these people are going to hell for doing the same things that they actually deserve to go to hell for, they're going to be so much more grateful to me and they'll love me even more. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Talking about Calvinism? And the idea was, well, then what do we do with, why is God being so loving to these people he wants to go to hell later and plans to send them there? Why would God be so gracious? Well, it can't be to reveal his goodness to them so they'll believe in him because we already know he's going to send them to hell. So we have to draw a distinction between how God is good to everybody and how God is good to the elect. And so what they came up with is the idea of common grace that God gives to everybody, which seems like he's trying to love them into waking up and loving him, but it's not that way. And then the saving grace that he gives to the elect who actually do wake up and love him. Common grace is what the Calvinists call the grace God gives to everybody even though they're all going to hell. And, sa and, and then saving grace is the, is, the, is the different way that God relates to people whom he intends to save. Now, I don't agree with this at all. However, I really like the fact that they admit that God sure does act like he's fixing to love everybody into his kingdom. They just call it common grace. I agree with them that God sure does look like he is pouring goodness on everybody as if to reveal himself to them in such a way that their hearts would wake up and say, I want you. Except the difference between me and my Calvinist, and I used to be a Calvinist, which is why I feel like I can talk about this a little bit. The difference between me and my Calvinist friends is that they think he's only acting like he's trying to save them and love on them. And I think there's no difference between common grace and saving grace. The only difference is what you do with it. That he's literally pouring himself on all the people of this planet. 
blessings and life and love and protections y'all don't even know about. Answers to prayers you forgot to pray, but your heart wanted it and you didn't say it, but you prayed it. He counted it as a prayer. In Him we live and move and have our being. He was near before you were near. He was drawn near to you before you drew near to Him. Right? He was calling to you before you were answering. So I'm, I'm laying out these two concepts, common grace and saving grace, even though I don't agree with the distinction, because I love the fact that even the people who believe God has no intention of saving 95% of the human species at least have to admit it sure looks like he wants to. Look at how he behaves. Look how gracious he is. Look how kind he is. Look how he preserves order in society. Look how sinful humans are. We're so shocked when things go wrong, right? The problem of evil. This is, how, this is how orderly the world is. The world is so orderly that we can freak out and get mad when things go wrong. We're not shocked when two people try to have a baby, and they, and they do. We act like it's a crisis of faith when this tiny percentage of the population tries to have a baby, and they can't. Because we're so used to everything going right, we have a problem with God when something somewhere goes wrong to someone we care about. We're not shocked with the miracle of how much order and how much life and how much goodness there is. It's part of what I mean by the, the problem of evil versus the problem of good. If we were just a little more cynical, then we would be like, what is this? Laughter? Here's my basic thesis. Back in, in college, there, the president of, the co of Asbury College, that I, who was the president when I was there for most of when I was there, was a gentleman named Dr. Geiertsen. And I loved that guy so much. Uh, there was a speaker who came in and he was telling us that he, haven't, he hasn't sinned since 1978. And, um, and I was looking at him going, well, you're sinning now by lying. <laughs> what? And he is like, and if you seek Jesus, you too can be sinless like me. And I was like, dude, what? I wish. Uh, <laughs> So I, I was troubled because I felt like what he was going to do was people who were really sincere and want to please God would all rush to the altar, pray real hard, and then next morning they'd wake up and sin in some way, shape, or form. So like as soon as you have a selfish motive, it's like, ah, oh, it didn't work. I'm a failure. So I was real concerned about how the other students were hearing this. So I sit down in the front row next to... Dr. Geiertsen, because it's, it's revival week, which is funny, right? The whole idea that you can schedule an annual revival. <laughs> hey, God, uh, we need you to show up uh, November. <laughs> and he's like, oh, pencil you in. Yes, that's right. I'm going to do a move of God over here on this weekend. Okay, yeah, let's see if we can get you. So we were all required to go there for revival services. And so it's evening services, and this dude's going on, and he says this. Again, I haven't lusted since 1978 when the Spirit of God did this and this and this. And I'm like, so I go down, and I sit next to the president. And I met, apparently I made enough of a face. You know what I'm talking about? Like where, and he goes, Penny, for your thoughts. And I go, ah, uh, what do you think about what this guy is saying? I, I don't like it. And he says, um, well, and this is the president of the college. He says, frankly, Tim, I find this teaching unhelpful at best and more than likely problematic. And I was like, I think that's... PhD people's words for, I don't like it. <laughs> I always love that guy. I love Dr. Geiertsen. And he would come and he would talk in chapels. And I think I must have heard him say this phrase right here, all truth is God's truth. 30, 40 times. 
over the course of my four years there. His vision, his thinking was, we're going to bring these kids here. We're going to teach them language. We're going to teach them science. We're going to teach them math. We're going to teach them literature. We're going to teach them sociology. We're going to teach them history. We're going to teach them theology. We're going to teach them counseling. We're going to teach them this breadth of topics. And the reason that we're doing it all in Jesus' name is because all truth is God's truth. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna form people whose posture towards the world is not to be threatened by their belief systems because if they have something in their belief system that's better than the, what we have in our belief system, we can simply adopt it and make our belief system even better because they have done a good service in finding more truth for me to add to my truth pile. So I don't need to feel threatened by non-Christians who are smarter or better. I don't need to feel threatened by non-Christians who are more ethically advanced than me. I can actually learn from these people, whoever they may be, and be enriched by them and thank my Jesus that he is giving me an upgrade through them. That's all I got that all from Dr. Geyerson. If all truth is God's truth, then the light that's in other religions is them seeing the real God who's pouring goodness on them, even if it's like the way I can see right now, which there's a human, there's another human, there's one, there's one like there. There's two humans there and there and there. See, I can see y'all, even though I can't see y'all very well. And what if it's like that? But Jesus is even brighter than this, more clear than this. I kind of grew up with the mindset of, if you're not in the faith, then you're filled with demons. <laughs> you, know, you know, I was only allowed to listen to Christian music. You know, it's like mom would watch or listen to James Dobson. And if something was on the list of things he said parents shouldn't allow their kids to do, I wasn't allowed to do it. You know, when I got saved... I had a, whole <laughs> had a whole bag full of CDs, because we used to have CDs. And when I got committed to Jesus, I burned them. And my dad was trying to rescue some of my albums out of the fire. <laughs> well, this is good music. And I was like, don't do it. Don't, don't mess. And I needed to do that. Like, I needed to do that because of the place that those musicians held in my heart. They were, like, they were my apostles and prophets. But now, all these years later, like just today, uh, what did we have on? We had Bruce Springsteen on, really, really loud. We had Ace of Bass. You guys remember Ace of Bass? I saw the sign. I walk over and my neighbor's in there, and I go, do you know what was on the sign, Serge? And Serge is in there playing video game, and he looks at me and he goes, no. I said, you heard of Ace of Bass, Serge? Nah. I'm like, now? Now we can, we can play all that music and dance to it because I don't have the idea in my head that it's either Christian or it'll take you straight to hell and fill you with demons. Now I have the idea <laughs> that all truth is God's truth, all goodness is God's goodness, all beauty is God's beauty. So if there's a scientific breakthrough, we used to be like every time there was a scientific breakthrough, we'd try to argue against it using the Bible. Because we felt threatened. No, no way. No, 
scientific breakthrough. That's us discovering more about God's world using the tools God gave us to find out about God's world. When there's a breakthrough in medicine, which would you rather have? That everyone you lay hands on gets healed of cancer or that we find a cure for cancer? I would, like, I would rather have a cure for cancer than me feel have to be personally responsible to lay hands on every single human day and I could never... I'd feel guilty for stopping and eating food. I'd feel like I was killing people if I took a nap. Some people view medicine as opposed to faith. And I view medicine as my gracious Jesus, who I'm asking to do a miracle, raising the bar for everyone who can't get a miracle. What about goodness? Now when you see that there's good parents, you give thanks to God that those parents are good parents even though you wish they would also find Jesus. Beauty all around, you give credit to Jesus. Whenever you see somebody loving on hurting people, like after we had, we, we have a weird country. We had these school shootings, and I remember watching these counselors, these grief counselors, show up to these schools and cry with these kids and walk people through it. And I'm like, that is a, that is a like, you, you're praying for those people. I don't know if they know Jesus, but he's working through them. When you see a culture move forward, when you see women treated better, when you see minorities treated better, when you see less injustice, when you see better economic practices in a culture, whether it was brought about by Christians or not, that's God's grace. When you see people get free from addiction, whether or not it's because they met Jesus or not, I give credit to Jesus. You know, some people, this is an interesting thing, like um, Alcoholics Anonymous was started when the Christian psychologist Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, I think it's Carl Jung, he came to the conclusion that there are some psychological disorders that are so deep that the only thing that can break them is what he called a religious experience. What he was saying is, I think these people need Jesus. <laughs> so his friends who came to him and said, what are we going to do? And he said, ah, this, this is too deep for psychology. They need, they need a religious experience. They started... Alcoholics Anonymous in response to him saying that. And if you look at the steps, the steps are what would a person do who was finally coming to the realization that they need to let go of control of their life and turn over, surrender to a, a good, loving, almighty God? Uh, Mel Gibson. Robert Downey Jr. plays Iron Man. Right? So... Years ago, when Iron Man <laughs> was a mess, living homeless on the streets, and an addict, Braveheart called <laughs> Iron Man when he was living on the streets. I'll call them by their names. Mel called Robert Downey Jr. when he was at his worst, and he said, you need help. And the kind of help you need is way deeper than just you changing your mind about some stuff. I urge you to get a faith. You don't have to get my faith, but I urge you to find a faith that has mercy and forgiveness at the center of it. And then I would, add, I would, I would urge you, you, you want to look away from your, your, your broken parts. I'm asking you to hug the cactus. 
and admit and own and look at what's really wrong with you long enough to let your admitting what's really wrong with you work its transformative magic until it changes you. And when it does, all I'm asking, and he, and he, was, he was committing to be there for him, long haul, committing to be there for him, long haul. He would call him. He would support him. He would encourage him. And he's like, how can I ever repay you? Mel, how can I ever repay you? And he says, all I'm asking is that you pass it on to the next person. That's all I'm asking. Now, the reason I know that is because Robert Downey Jr. shared that in a speech years later when Mel Gibson famously became exposed for choices, words, behavior that was devastatingly terrible, his own stuff. And Robert Downey Jr. said, he said, he told me to pass it on to the next person 10 years ago, never imagining he would be the next person. And then, he, and then he said this. He said, he was saying this speech like at some movie award thing. He says, um, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He said, this is Hollywood, y'all. You really, you really want to be casting stones? <laughs> they all laughed. I was like, oh, they know. He said, this man has hugged the cactus long enough. Can we please welcome him back? And they cheered. Mel Gibson said, I want you to find a faith. It doesn't have to be mine, but it really does have to be one with forgiveness at the center. Ooh, it doesn't have to be mine, but by the way, mine's the only one like that. Just put that out there. Mine's the only one like that. Grace is unique to, to our faith, but... Genuine faith in the wrong faith, the real God can answer. You can nod. The real God can answer genuine faith in the wrong faith. You also see, and this is shocking when you see this, people who don't even know Jesus forgiving people who have harmed them. How can they do that apart from Jesus? What if it's the Jesus they don't yet know, enabling them to do? Okay, I don't know what verse you're thinking of, but it, my, my verse to support what you just said is Romans 1. Romans 1 it says, when, when Gentiles do, who do not have the law, um, reveal that they yet know the law by how they behave. That's an interesting thing, right? So they don't have the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, but God has made himself so known that even Gentiles who've never heard the story, they can tell you what's right from what's wrong. There's an intuition. Why? Because God makes himself known. Well, that's my heart. My, my thing is God doesn't make himself known in order to say, aha, gotcha, and then send us to hell. He makes himself known so that we will reach out and, and actually respond. Yeah. Most of us don't, though, if we're honest. I still believe there's a wide, wide path that leads to destruction, and, you'll, and many are on it. That's it. That's pretty much the talk. All truth is God's truth. So instead of feeling threatened by goodness in a world that largely doesn't know Jesus, we can be thankful for all the goodness and all the beauty and all the truth we find. We can, we can receive upgrades through people who don't know Jesus. We can even receive upgrades about Jesus through people who don't know Jesus, interestingly enough. 
I, I, wa- I really want this mindset in the church because I think it will help us not have a, a, a sort of a culture war mindset. Humans don't care about facts. Humans care about tribes. If I think you're from a warring tribe, I will put my spear towards you and back away. And your evidence to convince me that your tribe's belief system is right will just be viewed as a sneaky tactic. Because we're humans. We're not logical creatures. We're, we're, not, we're tribal creatures, wired to survive. Are you friend or foe? That's the question we're asking. This is why it does not work to convince people of something they don't want to be convinced of on Facebook. They, they're, they're asking one question. Yeah, are you with me or are you against me? And as soon as they can detect, hey, oh my goodness, spears up, right? But if you can find a way to build a bridge, you can find a way to, this Paul talked about it, like becoming all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. If you can find a way to become one of them, show them what it would look like for Jesus to be one of them. Not try to get them to stop being who they are and come over and join your tribe. But you join their tribe and manifest, what does love look like if it puts on flesh in this tribe? That's a very different cult. Because right now I feel like the church is fighting a culture war. We don't believe all truth is God's truth. He can only indwell my little tribe, my little truth, my little group. We have very little faith in the gospel. Oh, and when, and like, so if you encounter a new idea that you think threatens an idea you hold, hold dear, the spear comes out again. So anyone who can teach you something, ah, spears come out. I remember one of my spears came out at my, my theological professors in seminary and college over and over again. They knew the Bible better than me, and they were just trying to help me understand it better. But they would violate my understanding of what the Bible meant. And in my mind, that means they're violating the, the Bible and my spears come out. Who are these, these liberals? That was my little phrase for anyone who was naughty and believed bad things. The liberals. I thought I was falling away one day, and I was like, Jesus, please don't let me become a liberal. That was my worst idea. Because of the tribal wars. To me, switching tribes was going to hell. And I'm saying, what if, what if Jesus, coming from heaven, is joining our tribe? He becomes one of us to live among us to show us what love looks like with skin on, and then our whole thing then is to learn how to be so secure in him that we can do that for others, but we're too busy fighting a culture war where we don't believe all truth is God's truth, so we're fighting a war that God's not fighting against people who aren't our enemy. Does that make sense? Are you going to adopt this phrase, all truth is God's truth? After one night, please do. Please, please do it. Yeah, I feel like we're fighting wars that God isn't fighting against people who aren't our enemy. But we think they are. We, we th- Christians think we're at war with, with the culture and that if we lose an election, we've lost everything. We're fighting principality. We're fighting... Hopefully, we, if our eyes open, we'll realize we're fighting for those very people that we think we're fighting against. And like how we treat them, whoever they are, because as soon as we get us, them, we're in trouble. If we stop saying we, we're already in trouble. The Pharisees were were concerned about the same thing. If Jesus sits down and eats with sinners, they're living a godless lifestyle, they will get the impression that he is endorsing 
and approving of their lifestyle. And Jesus is sort of like face palm. It's not the righteous, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm not endorsing, I'm embracing them with love, convincing enough to, that, that they will listen to me. How are they ever going to listen to me if all I offer them is disapproving judgment and accusation? They're not going to want anything I'm selling. How are you going to help people when all they feel from you is hatred? I think we're really judgmental. I mean, I'm very judgmental. I, I know I am. <laughs> I, I'm interested in we're all souls. It's interesting how we rank sins, isn't it? Well, it's just funny how we rank sins. Like certain, my sins are like Christian sins. They're acceptable. What? Sadly, and it's painful. Yeah. There are certain, if you're an evangelist, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts makes sense to you. If you're a pastor, um, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, those kind of books really just, oh, yeah, that's the stuff right there. It, different, different books of the Bible kind of are the home base of the function. That's oh, yeah, absolutely. So what if you're prophetic yeah. or apostolic? What you oh, boy, I'd have to go. I'd have to think about that. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Because I'm just sort of basing that observation on realizing that what was the purpose of the book of Matthew? Evangelism. What was the purpose of Mark, Luke, John, Acts? Evangelism. What were the purpose of the letters to the pastoral? Guiding existing believers in how to live now that you are already believers, right? That's why pastors love that, evangelists love that. Um, and it's why you always gra- grab a baby Christian and you say, read through the Gospels, because the most important thing is Jesus. And that's all Jesus, right? Uh, and if they start reading through Genesis, you hopefully grab them and, and you save their life. And you say, come over here to Matthew. Start with Matthew. Uh, uh, Genesis is amazing, by the way. I'm not downing on Genesis. But I'm saying, start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. So I'll have to think about that a little bit longer. For my, my heart says, in terms of the prophetic, my heart says, like, literally the prophets, because when I read the prophets, I get things out of it that some people would, would be like, huh? That's why I was like, thinking, in the New Testament, is there... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Like, I can obsess over, like, okay, what did he do to get in the Spirit? Or, or uh, Jeremiah 18, and the Lord spoke to me and said, go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my word. And so I kind of obsess, and I'm like, but you were already hearing his word, so why did he say, as you were hearing him here, why did he have to... You heard him there. Why didn't he just keep talking then? Uh, the, the strong hand of the Lord was upon me, uh, Ezekiel. And I'm like, what does that mean? What did that feel like? Right? And the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and lifted me up and, and said to me, and I'm like, well, hold on. What did it feel like when the Spirit of the Lord came upon you? What does it mean that he lifted you up? Like, I want to know the mystical. Yeah. Ah, and I said, <laughs> and I said me, I am a Christian mystic. Oh, oh my gosh, I am too. Okay, I'm good. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Are we, are we, uh, what time is it? Is it time to, oh, it's 829. Okay, good. Because that means youth gets out at 8, 830. So, good. I'm going to pray and we'll be done, okay? Father, we thank you so much that you are good to everyone. Thank you, God, that you are not like us. You're not stuck in a tribe. You're not small-minded. You're not judgmental. You're not afraid of everyone who's not like you. Uh, you don't run away from Nineveh. You send people who are your hands and feet to Nineveh. You don't say, oh my word, these people are disgusting. I can't believe what they've done now. You say, oh my word, these people have lost their minds. I'd better go help them. Give them my mind. Thank you, God, that you are so beyond the us-them stuff that we do and that you are training us 
to love like you love, to see deeper than surface, to see past what seems to be going on to what's really going on. Thank you, God. And I ask that in this time, in this time, in our hearts, that you would give us a zeal for your truth that never outstrips our love for people, ever. That our zeal for your truth would always be led by, guided by, shaped by love for people. And I pray that it would be your very love for those people. I pray that love would flow among Christians and then through Christians to others. I ask that you would um, bring a season of repentance to us, your people, that we would return to what you really have called us to be about so that we would be fresh healing water to the nations. More, God, more. I feel like for me, God, there's, there's just a lot of hard-hearted um, I'm just tired of it, provoked and tired of sin and sinners, including my own. And you're, you're not. You still have more. You still have more, more mercy. You still have more miracles. You still have more redemption. You have, you have resurrection to bring. You have not grown cynical just because some of us have. And I'm asking, God, that you restore us to hope and you remove cynicism I pray that Jonah would turn around and not just preach to Nineveh, but love Nineveh. Amen.